Radio. Welcome to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs like you build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. My name is Nicholas Jensen, bringing you the secrets behind the relationships, strategies, and mindset of the most successful people on the planet. Showing you how to collapse time frames in order to win at business, money, and the adventures of life. You don't know what you don't know, so I'm here to show how the wealthy live, think, and make their money grow. It's time to live the life that you deserve. I'm, I'm here to help. My, my name is Nicholas Jensen. And, and this is Unlimited Wealth. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jensen. Today, we are going to talk all about self-storage and how to invest in self-storage units as a passive investor. I'm joined by Chris Benson, who is the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Investments. They've done about $650 million in self-storage acquisitions, and they're one of the top 25 commercial self-storage operators uh, here in the U.S. So he knows the ups and the downs, the ins and outs, outs, everything you need to know about self-storage. So please help me welcome Chris Benson. Hey, Chris. uh, Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. You bet, dude. Hey, uh, kind of uh, to, to get started here, let's, uh, you know, you and I have been talking off the line a little bit about what you do and, and what I do and, and how that, uh, that commingles with each other. But for my listeners, kind of give us a rundown of who you are, what you do, and uh, let's dive into some of the self-storage stuff that we have happening these days. Yeah, for sure. So um, again, I'm Chris Benson. I'm the uh, Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Real Estate Management. Uh, We are a vertically integrated self-storage operator, just meaning that we're buying and managing self-storage properties, um, primarily in the southeastern part of the United States. Uh, I'm talking to you from our office in Roswell, Georgia. So just north of Atlanta is is where we're located. And uh, today we're the 25th uh, largest self-storage operator in the U.S. Kind of goes up and down year by year, depending on what we're buying and selling. But just to give you a sense of scale. Um, we have 50 properties across eight states. So, um, you know, our, our strategy has been built around uh, mostly value-add self-storage in, in secondary and tertiary markets. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good overview for, for now. Sweet, dude. So one of the things that I always talk to, to listeners about, and this is a little bit of the mind game that investors have, right? And And the entrepreneurs have is... Where I've got excess capital, I'm making good money. I need somewhere to put this money. When you look at at the marketplace and you look at society and you look at the media, especially, most people think the first place they're going to go is Wall Street, right? For me, I'm pretty anti Wall Street. I'm like, that's the last place you need to go. And so I start to uh, look at individuals like you and companies like you that are doing deals directly, boots on the ground, have specific deals they're looking at, not a huge, you know, here buy, you know, a couple thousand shares of, of a company that's selling, you know, millions of shares or trading millions of shares a, a, a day or whatever. But companies that are boots on the ground, we're doing this deal in this location. We know this building. We know the RI. We know things that we're up against. So from your perspective, it's a little bit of a, in my opinion, it's a mindset shift for investors, right? Because it's easy to go to Wall Street. That's what everybody tells you to do. But in reality, in my opinion, deals like this are a better opportunity for people. So when you look at a mindset shift, how do you guys kind of overcome helping investors realize, hey, this is an opportunity. And although it's outside of quote unquote normal, what you'll hear on the, in the media this is why it's it's a good opportunity to invest in companies like us. 
do you ever face that type of stuff or how do you over, how, how do you help business owners kind of overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I would say Nick, most, most investors, at least with us in self-storage, and I think there's kind of two parts to that discussion, um, kind of a macro level and a micro level. So if you think about it at the macro level, most investors are going to real estate for a reason, right? Um, there's something about real estate that, that makes it attractive as an asset class. I would say most of the conversations we have from an investment standpoint is typically it's people, as you described, you know, business owner, doctor, lawyer, accredited investors who have said to themselves, look, I have exposure in the equities market. I'd like to look at something non-correlated to the market, right? Something that as the market has some volatility up and down, we're not seeing values um, go follow what's happening in the stock market. And, and generally, you know, that's the first reason people look to real estate from our investor base. And then there's certainly some tax efficiencies um, and opportunities from a, an overall return standpoint that, that also make it attractive. But Nick, just like anything, there's good and bad. I mean, the downside to real estate is it's not liquid, right? So you get in a deal like one of ours and, and typically, you know, we're talking about a five to seven year hold, right? So if that's money that you need to be liquid and you need to be able to get in and out of, we're not a good option for that. But, you know, I'm, I'm certainly biased, but, but real estate does offer a lot of unique benefits. I would say one of the biggest is the tax efficiencies that go along with it. Um, so that's probably a reason a lot of people go to real estate as an asset class entirely. And then I think the second part of that discussion is, is why self-storage? And I think there's some unique things specifically about storage that people are interested in. Um, it's considered recession resilient. Um, you know, 2007, 8, and 9, self-storage did really well. Um, and knock on wood, you know, we're recording this beginning of October, um, through COVID, the asset class has performed well. And I think generally it's because people don't get rid of stuff, right? If they have things, they generally don't like to get rid of them. Um, and so um, our business is, is a transition business. When people have transition in life, we call it the four Ds of self-storage. So death, divorce, dislocation, and downsizing. When those things are happening in people's lives, generally they need self-storage. And so, you know, I guess fortunately for us as an asset class during a pandemic like COVID, we're generating more of those demand drivers. So I think, you know, why people go to real estate is one piece of it. And then specific assets in within real estate, they make a decision of what makes sense for what they're trying to accomplish with their capital. Sure. So it sounds like a lot of your investors already are exposed to the equities market. So they're they're listening okay. to the media, if you will. Like I'm super biased against against Wall Street. So I think, although as you talked about, there's some downside liquidity issues with real estate. I think the upside potential and things that you've talked about as far as tax advantages and cash flow and things like that far outweigh, you know, kind of that downside liquidity. So let's uh, let's unpack that a little bit. So you you talked about I want to unpack two things. One, the tax advantages of real estate, because I think that's that's super important for investors to understand why that's so advantageous. And then two, the resiliency of self-storage, right? Because just as in real estate itself being an asset class, you've got different asset classes within real estate, self-storage, uh, mobile home parks, apartment buildings, single family homes, commercial buildings, you name it, right? There's tons of different ones. 
a guy I go to the gym with, he's probably 20 years my senior. He locally owns a bunch of self-storage. In fact, he just uh, finished building another, I think, 300-unit building, and then he's got another 300-unit, 350-unit place under contract right now. And and he's like you. He he loves that asset class because he's like, people don't get rid of stuff. They put it in self-storage, and it just it, it just stays there, and they, they, they pay their bill. <laughs> Question is why? Like why? I mean, is, is it a – is it people just kind of forget about it and it's a low payment that, that they're willing to just continue to pay it? Or what, what are the downside risks? I mean, you talk about it being resi- or re- recession resilient, but what are the downside risks to that? Because n- obviously no investment's perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, to answer your question about why people keep their stuff, I mean, I think it's inherent in American consumerism, right? I mean, when times are good and people are making money, they buy stuff. And when times are bad um, and they're downsizing or moving or getting new jobs, um, generally they hang on to that stuff. It's kind of that view of there's going to be a better day and I'm, I'm going to need that stuff when things get better. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think inherently it's, it's just built into us um, that it's hard to get rid of things. I mean, I talked to a guy yesterday, one of our investors who, you know, he has three storage units of his grandmother's belongings. He hasn't been there in a year and a half and he doesn't really know what he's going to do with them, but to throw them out would be heartbreaking. You know, those are our best customers, right? I, I can't tell you, Nick, how many times I've been in a unit where the value of the goods in the unit are worth probably less than a month's rent. Um, or, you know, there's a boat that's literally rotting into the ground. It's never going to move again, but someone's paying to park it there. So, you know, those kinds of things, I think, make the asset class interesting. You know, I, I, I don't understand. It's not the same in all countries. Um, yeah. Self-storage in Asia doesn't, it, it hasn't grown the same way it has here in the U.S., um, but, you know, today, if about 9% of the U.S. population uses self-storage. So it's, it's become a thing, right? It's just part of the American consumerism. And, and maybe that changes someday in the future, you know, as people become minimalists. And, um, but I, I think that's a generational change, and it's probably not going to affect the investment horizon that, that we're working off of. One thing that comes to mind as you talk about self-storage, so, for example, like Asia is probably a little bit different, but even within the U.S., metropolitan areas. So if I live in New York City in a, let's say, a thousand square foot apartment or 500 square foot apartment, having a, an extra storage unit makes sense to, to maybe, you know, pack my winter clothes in versus my summer clothes and things like that. But what's interesting is you talk about you guys are kind of in the south, southeast, uh, focused on secondary and tertiary markets. So that's not necessarily these big metropolitan areas. Correct. And what's funny to me is most of when I think about that and, and correct me if I'm wrong, those types of communities are a little bit more suburbish and rural, meaning people have more space individually, but they're still using storage. Do you know what I mean? So do you see, do you see from your guys's perspective is, one type of self-storage better or creating better returns than another. So for example, you can have a cinder block building with a garage door on the front of it, no climate control, right? That's one. 
You could have a climate controlled self-storage. That's two. Or you could have like an RV boat type self-storage. Do you guys play in all of those markets? Do you see uh, ROI changes in those different areas? What are your, what are your perspective? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's market specific, right? Um, you mentioned the climate versus non-climate. I, I mean, you know, we have facilities in South Florida. There's almost no non-climate control because it's so humid. You know, stuff's going to get mildewy. So everything's got to be air conditioned, right? But, you know, some of our stuff in North Carolina where, you know, winters can get cold, um, you know, you may need some heat. Uh, so it really is, it's market specific um, and the demands in those particular markets. We, we bought a property uh in august august 31st i guess um that's right on the border of uh, uh georgia and south carolina and lake hartwell is there which is one of the biggest freshwater lakes in the southeast and so you know we're going to build some additional boat and rv storage there right so think that you know that metal um uh, pavilion style parking um to to take advantage of those demands so What's interesting about storage, Nick, is it's what really matters is kind of the one, three, and five mile radius radius around the facility. It's very much a micro market game, right? You know, people aren't driving for self storage. You know, like apartments, if you're in the right school district or your amenities, people will typically travel for that. You know, self storage is a garage. <laughs> so if it's close to your work or close to your home, that's probably where you're going to go. Um, most convenient. So, you know, what, what really matters on the acquisition side and under, is understanding the market in that one, three and five mile radius around the facility itself. Is, um, I assume that that kind of expands. The most important is that one mile radius versus a three mile radius versus a five, or is that not true? And it, it depends on the market you're in. Like if you're in Manhattan, right? Nobody looks at a one, three and five mile radius because the density is so high. Yeah, sure. For us, it's usually the one mile radius um, is super oversupplied, right? Because think about commercial properties. They're generally in the same spot, right? I mean, zoning, you know, for a municipality has generally put all the commercial stuff in one spot. And then the suburban sprawl is outside of that. So typically that three and five are the most relevant. If it's a much more rural area, sometimes we'll go out and look at seven to 10. It, it's, you got to think about those radius circles and then who are they supporting how big is the population and what's the other supply in the marketplace that may be supporting that same population so it's really about understanding the story of that particular market and then where the demand drivers may be based on who's there that makes sense so that's all relevant i mean it's relevant as a whole but that's from kind of an acquisition side so let's talk about the investor side i'm a business owner i make good money i'm looking to expose some of that capital to real estate specifically self-storage i come to you what are the things that i need to be looking at to know hey this is this is an investment that makes sense versus this dude's a shyster and is just trying to, to get my capital. So walk me through the things that an investor needs to look at specifically with self storage. If they're looking to invest in that type of asset class. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would even take a step back from the self storage discussion. So what you're describing is an investor who's made a decision that they're going to be passive, right? There, there's two choices to start, right? You can be an active investor or passive. Active meaning you're going to go out and buy your own stuff, right? Which is, which is what you guys are doing, right? You guys would be considered active investors. Right. 
but Nick, you could be too, right? If you went out and bought an apartment building, you're an active investor. And, sure. and the people who come to us say, look, I don't have time or energy, but I like the asset class and I want to partner with a professional operator who can do that for me. And look, if you can do it direct, you'll make more money, but you're also going to make a lot more mistakes, right? I mean, Reliance has been right. in business for 10 years and uh, have bought a lot off, bought and sold a lot of properties. So, you know, from an investor standpoint, where I start, and I do a fair amount of passive investing as well with other groups like us in different asset classes. I mean, the first thing is this is you got to understand that this is a people business, right? You're not really in, as a passive investor, you're not really investing in the real estate, you're investing in the group who's selling you the investment. And so for me, um, the big part is understanding who the people are, um, what their experience level is, and then what their track record is, right? And, you know, Nick, if you come to me and say, hey, I want to buy these apartments, um, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced real estate guy, but I've done everything in hotels. I'm going to look at you and say, well, you know, come back to me when you've done apartments and then I'll invest in your apartment deals. Um, so I think, you know, history is usually a pretty good indicator of what the future is going to be. Um, and so you want to dig into their track record and understand, you know, have they lost properties to the bank? Have they lost investor principal? Um, and can they validate those numbers with references, right? You know, I can't tell you how many times people don't even Google search, you know, the company name and the word fraud. I mean, it's super easy, but they just blindly trust, right? So for me, those are easy ones. Um, if I'm investing a substantial chunk of money, background checks, always a good idea. They're pretty cheap. Um, and if people are pushing back, the operator is pushing back on you, giving you the information, run, right? I mean, if people don't want to be transparent with their info, you probably do not want to invest with them. Um, you know, and then, so after you get to comfortable with the people and I would encourage you to go visit them if you can, or zoom call or, you know, meet the people who are doing this and you understand the track record. Then I think you start to dig into the underwriting, Nick. And, and look, most people are not going to be savvy enough to look at a pro forma that we're like, for example, that we're building and poke holes in it. Um, you know, Unless you're a sophisticated real estate investor, we're going to show you a you know, 20 tab spreadsheet and you're going to be impressed with just the breadth of information, but not necessarily understand what assumptions are critical. There's one assumption, if I could give people any advice to dig in on, and, and it's the exit cap rate. And for those of your listeners who don't know what cap rate is, Basically, in, in real estate, um, its capitalization rate is defined as um, if you bought a property for all cash, there was no debt on it, what is the rate of return on that particular asset, right? So, you know, if the property is going to produce 5% a year on your cash investment, that is your capitalization rate. If cap rates go up and down based on the amount of demand for a specific asset class, right? So if there's a lot of people investing in, let's say, self-storage, that means values will go up, right? Supply and demand. You know, a lot of people demand it, so prices usually go up. If no one wants to invest in self-storage, cap rates will go, or sorry, cap rates go down in that environment. And if no one wants to invest in self-storage, cap rates go up, which means values are going down. So one thing you can look at from an investor standpoint is how do they project cap rates to be in the future, right? If they're saying to you, hey, five years from now, we're going to sell this thing. And the exit cap rate is what it is today, right? 
the values are not changing. Well, there's a pretty good bet that that, in, that operator is being aggressive on their assumptions because it's hard to predict five years in the future, right? How we do it is we just say, look, we think things are going to get worse. So values will go down. If they don't and they stay where they are today, well, then it's a win. Everybody's making more money. But it's one metric you can hone in on and understand from the operator's point of view how they view the world, right? If, if cap rate, the spread between what you're going in at and what you're coming out at is very small, then they're usually pretty aggressive. And other assumptions in the pro forma are also going to be aggressive. And so those kinds of things are the things you can, you can dig into just to, to get a sense of where they stand. Right. So let, let me just kind of make this as simple as possible for, for the listeners. When, when Chris is talking about the difference in those cap rates, let's just use easy numbers. Sake. Let's say you get into an investment today and it's got a 10, 10% cap rate. When he's talking about that exit cap rate in the future, ideally in a, in a perfect world, you would want that, that cap rate to be at 5% when you uh, sell it in the future. Cause that means the, the value of the asset that you purchased or invested in has now gone up in value. So cap rates are, um, uh, the word is escaping me, not a direct correlation, but an indirect correlation with the price of the, the property. So I'm just trying to, just trying to help listeners make that clear in their mind, that cap rate spread that they want is they want the cap rate that they're going to sell the property at in the future to be lower than the cap rate that they're buying the property at or investing in the property at today. Correct? Correct. But what I would say is when you're looking at a deal, Nick, you shouldn't predict what you just described. It's hard to think that cap rates, especially in the market we're in today, will improve or in, in the in analogy you just described, go down and value go up, right? So what I would want to see from an operator is that they're projecting, hey, we hope what you just described happens. But what we're projecting is that things are going to get worse year over year, right? And, and what that does is gives you me a sense of that now I know their assumptions are conservative. They're betting that values are going to go down. And if values go down, then the amount of money you as an investor make also goes down. If they're projecting that, well, then probably the rest of their assumptions are somewhat conservative. If they're saying, look, five years from now, values are going to go up. Well, they don't know. None of us know. We don't know how to predict the future. But if that's how they project their pro forma, then you can make the assumption, hey, the rest of their assumptions, things like rent growth and lease up pace, all that have huge impacts on what the return profile looks like are also aggressive. That's just kind of how I think about it. And you know, for most people, they're not going to be able to dig into a pro forma and know what's happening. It's just kind of one thing you can look at it and kind of a, an initial filter of, hey, how do you view the world? Dude, I really, um, thanks for clarifying that. Cause I like, I like the way that you think like, like as an investor looking at it, I like that approach, right. Rather than the approach, the perfect scenario that I'm talking about is like, yeah, that's ideally what you'd want to have happen. Cause that's where you, you make the most money. But from, from the way that you describe it as an, as I look at it from an investor, I'm like, okay, these operators are conservative. But here, but how, how are you able to convince investors, hey, invest in our deal today. Oh, by the way, we anticipate values are going to go down and 
the level or the return on your investment is going to go down over four or five years or, or whatever. And investors were like, yeah, I'm in dude. Like I'll invest today and you're, I'm going to make less money next year and the year after and year. Yeah, dude, I'm in because from a, from an investor standpoint and the way that we're conditioned as a society, societal norms and wall street and all the hubbub out there, people are like, no, like I'm going to make, you know, I got to make 10%, 20%, 30%. Like I'm invested in crypto and I got a thousand percent return in, in three days. And do you know what I mean? So from a psychological standpoint, that's a different approach. So is it, is it a level of investors you're dealing with where accredited investors, because this has been my experience, they kind of understand. They're like, okay, we get, we get the reality versus the hype versus people that maybe just don't understand it. What's your, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not projecting a loss. We're just projecting that when we sell it, we're still building value in a property, but the valuation, the, the exit cap rate that we're using to come up with that valuation five years from now, you know, maybe that like, for example, we're, we're in the midst of a, an equity raise right now where the projected returns are between 12 and 15% a year when we're all said and done. Right. If our cap rate was 50 basis points lower, right? If we said, hey, instead of a 6% exit cap rate, it's going to be five and a half. Well, that 12 to 15% now becomes 18 to 20, right? So it looks yeah. better on paper, yeah. right? We call that Excel money, right? Anybody can make money on Excel. You just yeah. change the assumptions in your pro forma. So yeah, Nick, I'm not, we're not putting stuff out to investors showing, hey, invest 100 grand this year. And when we're done, we're going to give you 50. Nobody's investing in that. I'm just saying that you know we're we're making a projection wherein assumptions are pretty conservative, so that at the end we hope we're underpromising and overdelivering, right? If if cap rates are 50 basis points lower and you make 18 percent, you're going to be happy, <laughs> you know. So I think that's kind of the balance. And as you look at, for your listeners who are looking at any deal, including stuff from us, you want to understand how they view the world. And are their assumptions defensible? Because remember, on a pro forma, you can make anything look good. It's literally just changing the assumptions in Excel. So, you know, you, you have to understand what's driving the returns that someone is promising you. I want listeners to really get this. This is a vitally important conversation that Chris has done a great job of explaining. Pro formas are basically marketing material. They're, they're sales pitches. So you have to understand when you're looking at a deal, if you don't have the ability to dive into the numbers and that expertise, then what Chris is talking about is extremely valuable information to understand how are they projecting this investment go? Is it a conservative projection or is it an aggressive projection? Because I know tons of people that have lost a lot of money off of performance that look that looks really good. So Excel money, Nick. Excel money. You can make anything make money on Excel. Look, yeah. like let, let me just give you a real basic example and then and I, I don't want to, you know, beat a horse. But look, let, let's say for example, I'm I'm pitching an investment pro or a uh, an apartment community, right? And you look at the, the total returns and it says, you know, you're going to make 20% a year. You say, hey, that's great. You know, how, how does that 20%, where are you creating the value in the property that produces that 20%? And you come back to, and, and I come back to you and say, well, look, I'm going to raise rents 10% a year. Well, 
does the market support a 10% rent rate increase? The answer is no. No one's raising rents in apartment communities 10% a year because the tenants will all leave, right? If I'm paying a thousand bucks and next year you charge me 1100, I'm out because the guy down the street charged 3%, right? And, and so you have to understand the defensibility of the assumptions in the, the pro forma. And, and they're easy things to ask, right? It's just most people don't know what it is to ask. So, you know, I, I just use that exit cap rate as an example because it's one that generally gives you a sense of how they view the rest of the pro forma. Um, it is a pretty good indicator. Again, it, real investing passively is really trusting the operator. And that's, you know, until you have experience with them, it's hard to do because, you know, you're literally writing a check. And when we say you're a passive investor, I, I'm not trying to sound crass, but you have no control, right? Yeah. Reliant makes the decisions of, what we're doing with the property, how we buy and sell, unless we're committing fraud, we're in control of everything. So you got to be comfortable with the partner you're working with. That makes a lot of sense. Do you find it from your perspective, is it harder to find investors or is it harder to find investments? Um, In the market that we're in right now, there's a lot of capital chasing deals across the board. This is all real. Um, There's a lot of liquidity in the market. Yeah. Um, and because there's no yield from treasuries, right? Bonds and treasuries, there's nothing, literally almost zero. Um, so uh, people are flooding money into real assets. So right now, I would say for us, the challenge is, is probably more so on the investment side, you know, making sure we can find deals that, that still make sense, um, especially coming out of or coming through COVID and people are seeing how self-storage is performing. Right. So more capital is saying, hey, we need that protection in our investments. Let's go find a self-storage portfolio. So remember, more money into an asset class drives up demand, prices go up. So and for us, you know, we we need to be able to create value um, to uh, to make sense for our to create returns for our investors that they're going to be interested in. Yeah, And I I mean. I see that across the board, right? Apartment communities, mobile home, it's kind of all the same situation now is, yeah, there's a lot of money chasing deals. I was just curious where you were at. So let's talk about what, two things. One, let's tackle this one first. What's the average rate of return historically on self-storage? So if I'm an investor, I'm just like, oh, that sounds interesting. What could they typically expect? So um, if you look at the National Association of REIT data, right? Private placements aren't a good way to think about it because you're not comparing apples to apples. Everybody's offering could be different. But there's a National Association of REITs that tracks all of the publicly traded REITs across any asset class. Um, So in the last 25 years, self-storage did just under 17% a year across that 25-year period in the REIT category. So real estate investment trusts. These These are stocks that you can go buy you know, today, public storage, extra space, cube smart. Um, these are publicly traded storage reads. So historically, it's outperformed apartments. Apartments was closer to 13, just over, you know, it's like 12.7 in that same 25-year period. Retail and office, um, both in the low double digits, that 10%, 10, 11% range. So storage has outperformed them historically and has had that nice recession resilience through 2007, 8, and 9. You know, for example, in that same data set, storage lost less than 4% of its value. Um, and it looks like we're going to come through COVID relatively unscathed as well. 
So, you know, I think that's how, you know, that's why uh, so storage has become more popular is it's historically done well. And then even in an economic downturn has performed well. Um, and, you know, that's why in the last three years, there's been a huge development cycle to your point of your buddy you go to the gym with, you know, he's built a new facility. There are a lot of guys and gals like him who have built new facilities in the last five years. And, and really that's our biggest risk, Nick, is, you know, new supply coming to market hurts, right? So if you open a storage facility down the road from ours, you're going to drop your prices to make sure you can get tenants in and we're going to have to follow suit and that affects revenue. Um, so really right now in storage, that's the biggest risk is, is new supply coming to market. Cool. Let's kind of pivot a little bit to the tax advantages overall of real estate, right? There's there's huge tax advantages to owning real estate and, and especially owning real estate directly in like a, in like a, a reg D offering, which is, which is what you guys do. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? What are some of the advantages that investors can expect or anticipate when they're investing in, in real estate like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the tax, the tax code is really built to favor real estate owners. Um, and the primary reason is something called depreciation. And, and probably most of your listeners, if they're business owners, they have depreciation in other assets, maybe their buildings or equipment. And, and for those people who don't not familiar with it, essentially all depreciation is the IRS says, look, we know that next year or, you know, at the end of this year, the stuff you own is worth less than it what was worth at the beginning of the year. And so in real estate, think like, hey, the roofing, the landscaping, the pavement is all now a year older. And it's been beat up for that year. So we're going to allow you to deduct a year's worth of that cost. And what it does is offsets the income that the property or the investment potentially produces. So, you know, you can ostensibly earn a return. Let's say, you know, you put $100,000 into a project. Let's say you get $8,000 that year. So it's an 8% return, right? Well, with depreciation, you may be able to show you know, depends on the asset class, but a $20,000 loss. So to the IRS, you don't show $8,000 of income gain, gained, you show $20,000 of income lost. So you write off the income that you have gained. So essentially, you got that 8% tax free. And, you know, for many investors who have a lot of this um, passive income or K1 income, they can use real estate losses to offset other passive K-1 income. And look, I'm not a tax professional. You should consult with whomever right. your tax professional is. But what it allows you to do is, as opposed to paying capital gains on a stock that I made 20% this year and I'm paying short-term or long-term capital gains, it allows you to defer that. And, and you catch it up eventually, Nick, right? If you sell a property and you've depreciated all the value out, well, when you sell it, the IRS is looking at it and saying, okay, you know, you said to us the property is now worth zero because you've depreciated all the value out. You just sold it for a hundred grand. That's all profit. Well, the tax code has an answer for that too, and it's called a 1031 exchange, where you take the profit from that project and you can roll it into a like-kind exchange or another property and never pay tax on the gain. There, there's a strategy called defer, defer, and die. So many wealthy people continue to just roll properties, roll properties. They never need the big chunk of cash. They just take the cash flow. And remember, when they're taking the cash flow, depreciation is offsetting the income. So they're paying very minimal taxes along the way. 
And when they die, it passes through their estate and the depreciation clock resets. It's called a step up in basis. So the estate now inherits it with no taxes and they start with a fresh depreciation clock and they can do it all over again. So really wealthy people generally are buying lots of real estate and they're just rolling it, rolling it, rolling it. And, you know, people are upset about Trump's tax returns. And, and look, there's a lot of complexity there, but inherently he's making a lot of his income from real estate and there's all kinds of tax code that supports you not paying taxes on real estate. So not really anything to be upset about just taking advantage of what the tax code presents. Yeah. And I mean, you, you explained it very simplistically it, it, a, a complex topic, very simplistically that business owners and investors need to understand is the depreciation on real estate and being able to roll that and roll that and roll that and never pay taxes on it. Cause one of the things that I really focus on with, with, uh, my clients is you we're looking for tax-free money, illegal, as much legal tax-free money as we can get. This is one way you can get a lot of legal tax-free money is just by continuing to roll that profit into 1031 exchanges. Just out of curiosity, do you guys do cost segregations on your, uh, storage self storage or does that, does that asset class not really, uh, I, I guess, is it beneficial in self storage? Yeah, just just a quick definition for for your listeners that don't know what cost segs are. So what cost segregation studies do is they allow some pieces of the property to be depreciated faster, right? So in commercial real estate, it's 39 years. So literally the value of your property each year, you can take one 39th of it. With a cost seg, there are certain things that the IRS says, look, we know that's not going to last 39 years, landscaping, lighting, pavement. And there are firms that will come out and literally value those pieces of your property. And you can depreciate them on the front end, which creates more loss. Um, For us, Nick, we try to do cost segs on our stabilized assets. Um, That's where it makes the most sense for us. We, you know, um, in the world of depreciation, apartments, you can depreciate a ton of stuff, right? Because there's fixtures and plumbing and electrical and HVAC for every unit. You know, with us, it's a metal box on a cement pad. So there are less things to depreciate. Yeah. Um, generally, you know, we, we still have, have that advantage. So cost segs are something that we do mostly on our stabilized assets. Value-add deals, we wait till they get stabilized um, to, uh, to do those cost seg studies because cost seg study does cost money for sure. Yeah, cool. Well, Chris, this has been a this has been a great uh, great discussion. Um, I, I personally am not invested in any type of uh, storage units, but I always talk to my my buddy at the gym. I'm like, hey, dude, one one of these days, like we need to we need to do some deals together. So I appreciate you you coming on the podcast. Tell uh, the listeners, I know you guys are raising capital right now for uh, for some deals. Tell my listeners if this is something that interests them, if they feel like they're in a position where they'd want to throw some capital um, at self-storage and they'd be interested in talking to you and, and your firm. One, what do you guys have going on right now? Two, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so we'll start with uh, current opportunities. So we're working um, on a fund. So the easiest way to think about it, Nick, is like a mutual fund of self-storage properties. So, you know, investors come in at the fund level, the fund buys a whole bunch of properties, we hope. Um, and ostensibly it allows 
you know, the investor to diversify across multiple properties, multiple markets, multiple states, so that if one property gets hit, hopefully the rest of the portfolio buoys the performance, um, as opposed to just investing in one particular property, which is like a stock, right? If the stock goes up, great. Stock goes down, not so good. So that fund just offers that diversification. Um, and, you know, it's, it's projected to be a six-year hold between 12 and 15% a year, all said and done. And that includes, you know, kind of the distributions we make quarterly along the way, and then the profit from sale on the back end. Um, as far as getting a hold of us, reliantinvestments.com is, is our website. Um, you can find a lot of information on us, our firm, track record. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Uh, LinkedIn, you know, Chris Benson is spelled with a K. If you Google me and LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, and we, we put out a fair amount of content there as well. Cool, Chris. Well, thanks for joining us today. I think this has been uh, this has been great information and awesome. And for those listeners that are looking for exposure in real estate, specifically self-storage, I would encourage you to reach out to Chris, reach out to his company and, and explore that opportunity and see if that's something that, uh, that would work for you. Uh, until next time, we'll talk to you guys later. See ya. Hey, real quick. Are you a six or seven figure entrepreneur who is making great money, but like so many other unwealthy successes, you're not seeing your wealth grow? If so, I can help. Head over to nicholascjensen.com forward slash wealth and take my free wealth building assessment now. Learn how to become a strategic investor and start building the wealth you and your family deserve. Again, that's Nicholas, the letter C, Jensen.com forward slash wealth. We'll see you next time on Unlimited Wealth.